0: Our passage today, which is from Luke 2, uh, 25 through 38, would you please stand if you are able, out of respect for the reading of God's word, and then we will pray right after that. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and and this man was righteous and devout and waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. a light for the revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him and Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce your own soul also so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for you know, the word of, uh, the word that you've given us today, Lord. This passage is so fascinating. Lord, not in uh, its outward worldly greatness, but uh, in, the, in the unseen greatness of the people uh, that you are calling to yourself, the people that know you and understand and we who are known by you. So Lord, I pray that you would help us as we read this passage to be challenged in all of our ideals about greatness and what greatness truly is and help us uh, to see Jesus is truly the only one who is great, uh, but that our relationship to him uh, is the most important thing in the world. Uh, And that what you offer us is truly mind-blowing. So, Father, we pray that you would help us to see uh, what you see as great uh, and help us to live accordingly. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. And I remember in seminary, there was a, uh, we were talking about all the, the heroes of the faith. They always have that heroes of the faith class, or at least as we talk about, you know, different, different heroes of the faith and people, you know, that, are uh, noteworthy standouts in Christianity. Uh, I remember hearing about a guy named William Carey and William Carey was a guy who, who went to India with his family. Uh, and he, um, he was one of the fir- he was one of the uh, one of the first missiologists that went to you know to foreign lands to employ uh, the idea that we should be integrating into the culture rather than bringing all the whole package of Western culture to these foreign lands. So, I mean, there used to be pictures of Western missionaries and you know going into Africa or into you know different places, and they have barges up you know they're going up the river with these massive barges with giant you know church organs and pipe organs to set up like all the trappings of like Western Christianity. Uh, William Carey, another guy who went to China about the same time, thought differently and thought that we should be able to uh, I- integrate into the culture. And so what he did was he took, he took all, this, all the Hindu writings and translated them from this high language into a, the everyday language of everyday people. And then he translated the Bible into that same language so that people could just compare the two because people weren't even able to read their own scriptures, uh, you know, much like the medieval times, right? And so he, he did that translation so that people could compare the text one to the other. And he had this great vision that God had given him of bringing the gospel to India, this massive country with, you know, millions and millions and millions of people who had never heard of God or heard the gospel. And I remember them saying that his motto in life was, was this uh, expect uh, do great things for God, expect great things from God, man, and, and I heard that, and it was like you 're going to just feel my like, heart just like start to swell up. I was like, yes that 's what I want. I want that more than anything in the whole world is to is to do something great for God. It just resonated with me in every ounce of my being. Uh, And in in a lot of ways, it resonated in my being in a good way, right? I'd been saved from uh, utter destruction. I was so grateful just to be alive that I, you know, really wanted to dedicate my entire life and all that I was to God and to his service. And so that idea of doing something great for God had a very good sentiment to it. However... (laughs) It's really easy for that kind of idea of doing something great for God to be kind of twisted by our worldly values just in a little bit, kind of like I talked about last week, to where, uh, you know, we start to interpret those ideals into kind of a Christianized version of bigger is better. Or, you know, we start thinking and comparing ourselves with others and we start We can twist those ideals into the, the, you know, the ideal that second place is first loser. I mean, those are are ideals that are deeply embedded in me from my former life and from our culture. Uh, And as we've seen from recent events, big churches, we're seeing in Hillsong and Mars Hill and Willow Creek and Bethlehem Community Church and Ravi Zachariah, that that bigness can oftentimes come with a whole lot of problems. The idea of doing something great for God, if we attach it to the ro- to the wrong ideals and worldly ideals, it can it can cause some real, real damage in the church. Uh, you know. So I've been talking with my therapist about this a lot, you know. And uh, <laughs> when I say what I mean, when I mean when I say great something great for God. What I mean is, oftentimes I mean some sort of public work that inspires awe and respect. And and, in the best sense, that is inspiring awe and respect for God. But there's also that part of me that is really hoping that I get a little bit of that awe and respect for, for me too. And that idea of being great is being seen as great visibly by others in the church and in the world. Uh, you know that's kind of my struggle. So, you know, and that in the law reading today that Norman read, that was James and John's struggle. What they are asking Jesus on the what, what their mom was asking Jesus was their understanding that what Jesus was the King of Israel who was going to come and reestablish the kingdom of Israel, and they are asking for high-level political positions, greatness in worldly, in worldly that's means. Awesome. And so it was the disciples' struggle too, so I don't feel all that bad about it. Um, I'm in good company. Oh, here's the thing, God, you know, we look for glory in the famous things, but God sees glory in the faithful things. And that's really what this story is all about. I read, uh, we're focusing on, on Anna, the prophetess. We have to read the part about Simeon to set the context up for what what she's even talking about or how she's even part of this story. But really the focus is the highlight of Anna as, as you know, Anna, this, this older woman who's coming into the temple. Uh, she's a completely unknown person. No one would be able to pick her out of the crowd. Uh, and yet she's in the network with all these other completely unknown saints. Simeon, and this network of all these people that are waiting for the constellation of Israel. Uh, And God, for some reason, chose to honor them and immortalize them in the text by telling their stories, even though they were total nobodies, which is, uh, it's not how normal history works. Uh, And why does he do that? He wants to teach us an important lesson about who and what it who and what is great in the eyes of God. And I hope that's what we what we learn today. And the first thing is this, we learn that that the Bible is full of common people in an uncommon relationship with God. Now if you read history books or if you're into history at all, you pretty quickly figure out that history for the most part is about the great people of the day, the kings and the priests and the generals who are doing big things to shape the events of the world uh, and shaping the events of the, the culture. And rarely are common people even mentioned, and if they are, certainly not by name. There's really nowhere in the history of the Britons where it says, and then Alfred the serf went out to unclog the open sewers of the city. It's just not in there as important as that may be. Uh, and the Bible's full of kings and generals and priests and, and whatnot, but there's also, it's full of these common people who are completely unknown. Uh, they're not shaping the events of this world, but they're great in the sense of shaping the events of the world to come. And in this passage, everybody in this passage is a complete unknown. Even Mary and Joseph, we think Mary and Joseph is being famous, but that's something in the after. They died in total, lived and died in complete obscurity. Uh, and so here they are coming to the temple to make this sacrifice and offer a sacrifice for the, ba- for the baby Jesus, which was part of the, of the custom. And who is it that greets them? Who do we see coming to greet them? Who does God immortalize in this passage? There's two people. First is Simeon, and we have to like, dig out a little bit about who he is because it, really it really adds to the story. Simeon, for the longest time, I read this story, and I just assumed Simeon the priest. They're bringing... Uh, you know, the baby Jesus into the temple. They're going to offer the two turtle doves for the firstborn to redeem the life of the firstborn son. Uh, and the guy who meets them is this man, Simeon. So obviously he must be the priest, but that's not what it says. Look at what it says. It just says a man in Jerusalem. <laughs> a man in Jerusalem, not a king, not a general, not even a prophet. He's like a regular guy, you know? Maybe he's a tradesman. Maybe he's a merchant, uh, you know, what's noteworthy about him is that he's, he's serious about his faith. He's righteous, he's devout. Um, he has the Spirit of God. I imagine uh, Simeon as being like that tough, blue-collar worker guy who prays at the family barbecue and just drops everybody's jaws with how beautiful his prayer is because it's so clear that he's so, in, so intimately close to the Lord. Uh, And so here he is, you know, God, he's in this relationship with God where God revealed to him, that's the word for divine revelation, he's not a prophet, he's not a priest, he's not a king, that he would not die until he saw the baby Jesus and then the the Spirit brings him into the temple on this particular moment in time so he's there at the right point and then he knows who Jesus is. He picks him out out of all the other babies. You know, he picks out Jesus out of the crowd. And what's the point? The point is that no one would have picked Simeon out of the crowd. He's nobody. He's just a regular guy. In every metric and standard of worldly greatness, he's a totally common, regular guy. And yet here he is, quite legitimately giving the priestly blessing over Jesus and being immortalized in the text. Why? Well, the second, the second person we see is Anna. Uh, Anna is a widow. is She's described as a widow, advanced in years. Uh, she is. She is named as a prophetess, but she's not a known prophetess. She's. Uh, you know. She is. She is also pretty much just a regular gal, right? I almost kind of thought of, of Anna as being, having kind of a homeless vibe, right? She was having done a lot of homeless ministry and, and met a lot of, of homeless men and women who are very uh, mature in their faith um, and are doing, honestly, have, uh, you know, I met this one guy at one point who he introduced himself as an evangelist and it turns out is he legitimately true. He was an evangelist. He was a homeless guy who evangelized other homeless, uh, homeless people, and that's what he did. He's super faithful in that, and you could feel, you could sense that he had a deep relationship with the Lord. And so I've always kind of thought of, of, of Anna in that vein, right, that she's, because uh, it says she never left the temple. However, I've been convinced this week that um, really uh, what the language means is More like the way that we would say, you know, she's always there. We we would say she's always in church. That doesn't mean that she never leaves, you know. If somebody's here who's faithfully always coming to every every service, who's in every Sunday school, who's always at small group, who's at the prayer meetings, uh, she's just always there in church. It's not because, you know, we're not saying that she never leaves the building. We're saying, and I think this is saying, that's what Anna is like, because we see that God brings her up into the temple, again, for this very reason, to be there, to witness this, and so who is she? Anna, Anna's the church lady. <laughs> she's the church lady who's just super faithful, right? She's always there on Sunday morning. She's always a small group. She might not contribute a whole lot. You might not even you know, know her name. You might not talk to her a whole lot. If, if, if we were to write out you know, who the most important people in the church are, she's not going to make the top of anybody's list. And yet here she is. God has brought her into the temple at this particular moment so she would see Simeon giving this blessing. And then what does she do? This is kind of a cool thing in the text, it's kind of semi-hidden. She begins to speak about him to all the people who are waiting for the, for the, for the salvation of Israel, which is kind of shorthand for all the people who are waiting faithfully upon the Messiah. That's not everybody in the temple. That's not everybody that's there to offer a sacrifice that day. That's a network of people in the middle of this polluted, corrupt city and religious system who love God and are patiently waiting for his promises. And so Anna is really, she's like the forerunner to the forerunner. She's doing kind of John the Baptist's job, but even ahead of John the Baptist. Telling everyone who this child is. And so what's God trying to tell us in this? You know, He's trying to tell us a lot. But you know, we you know we look for glory in the famous things. That's how we're programmed. But God sees it in the faithful things. And to Him, it's not the high priest who's great. It's not Herod in the temple who's great. Uh, it's not the captain of the guards. No, no, no temple officials even mentioned. It's just these two regular common people that have this uncommon relationship with God and they're the ones who are described and, and brought out as the great ones in the eyes of God. And that's encouraging, man, because they're just regular people. That means that you don't need advanced degrees. We need guys with advanced degrees, right? We need some. We need some guys. We need a, a you know, assaulting of the church with that. But for the most part, now this is something that anyone can do and be. Anyone can have this kind of relationship with God, no matter who you are. Even if you're, you know, incapacitated. Even if you're bedridden. Even if you can't do anything that the world considers to be great and building. Culture, or building the church, or building community—anyone can hold this spot. And how? Do, what, what does she do? That's the important thing. What is going on? What is it that Anna does that's so important? It's held out, uh, and that is this: that the Bible, second part, the Bible is full of common people with an uncommon power. The Bible is full of common people with an uncommon relationship with God. The Bible is full of common people with an uncommon power. You know, when I think about Christianity, I think about it in the, in the way I think about everything else in life, I want to get out of the basics and into the advanced stuff. I wanna to get to the advanced stuff. You know, I, I, the first few years I was reading through the Bible, I was like looking for like the secret knowledge, the arcane, like mystical stuff, like the really high-level stuff that really like brought, uh, you know, maturity in the faith, and really brought, uh, you know, really increased my uh, my my intimate connection with God, my ability to operate in the spiritual realm. You know, I'm looking through and, and there's these tantalizing passages that Paul throws out where he talks about the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left. And I'm like, yes, give me that power. The weapons of our warfare. He's, you know, talking these terms. I'm like, what is this advanced stuff? What's he talking about? I want to know. I want to know what it is. <laughs> well, in, my, in my very early martial arts training when I was in high school, uh, my my instructor, a guy named Fred Carrington, uh, was a black belt. They, he and some guys flew to Japan for this big contest, this big sparring match, and uh, and there was this one guy, this Japanese guy, who was just killing everybody, just killing everybody on the mat. And Fred was like, "Man, I got to know that guy's secret." And so he goes up to him, and he says, "What's your secret, bro?" And in kind of broken English, the guy said, "Kihon kata ich," which means. Kihon in Japanese means basic. <laughs> kata means form and each means number one. <laughs> so you know what that means is he's like, it's the most basic, rudimentary, first thing you learn is a white belt when you come into the class. Kihon kata each. And he, Fred's like, no, 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 come on, man, you're pulling my leg, really. How, what, what is it that you're, what is it you're doing to destroy all these guys on, on the mats? And he's like, no, that's it. The basics. That's not the answer we want. That's not the answer I want, right? I want, you know, I want to know like the super advanced secret technique that you got to pay 350 bucks at a seminar to learn from some expert, right? But no, this guy was like, the basic, the most basic, I just practice over and over again, the most basic form that we teach, and it has brought me to this place where I have this mastery. You know, the fundamentals, the basic, every, every discipline has them. You know, I have a feeling if we went up to Anna and we said, hey, Anna, what's your secret? How are you a great one in the earth? She would give the Christian answer of, basically, she would say, kihon kata each. What does she do? Prayer and fasting. I'm like, what? No, wait a minute. That's like the basic stuff. We learn that on day one. I want to learn, what's the meditative techniques that I, you know, the, well, the breathing techniques that I can learn or the advanced, like, spiritual books I can read from the masters or the meditative techniques where I can breathe out God, you know, breathe in, out, Rob, and in God and, uh, you know, whatever it is. What, the, what are the essential oils that I can, like, uh, have around on my crystals and what candles should I be able to burn so that I can really progress in the faith And Anna would be like, what are you talking about? She's 84 years old, she spent 62 of those years as the church lady showing up to all the services and what does she do? She worships God in prayer and fasting. As if that's like the greatest thing you can do. (laughs) Of course we know that's not true. Uh, But then you start sorting through the Bible and it starts bringing out this uncomfortable picture, right? Jesus rises very early in the morning while it was still dark. He departed and went out to a desolate place and there he prayed, oftentimes for days or all night long. Uh, The book of Hebrews says that Jesus in the days of his flesh offered up prayers and supplications to God with loud cries and tears it says the unrighteous, Jesus gives this parable about this unrighteous judge where there's this woman who wants justice and she goes to this judge uh, and just by by just the sheer volume of how much she's pestering him, he finally degrees, he finally is like, I am just sick of this woman pestering me, I'm gonna do what she wants. And he says, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And Jesus is like, that's how we should be praying. Jesus is in a tough situation with a boy who's demon possessed. The apostles can't get him out, although they've been successful at other times, and Jesus says this one can only come out with prayer and fasting, which I've always taken to mean like in the really serious stuff. What's the answer? Prayer and fasting. Whenever it's life and death on the line, we call for prayer and fasting. Uh, Whenever people that we love are being hardened by the world and walking away from the faith. We don't argue with them, we pray and we fast because that's the most important thing. That's the great thing. Paul says, pray without ceasing. Acts 6 seems to imply that the apostles spent an equal amount of time praying as they did out in in preaching the word in, in missions, which was a lot. Even uh, James, the brother of the Lord, who wrote the book of James, his nickname was Camel Knees because his knees were so calloused from spending so much time on his knees praying. So why is that uncomfortable, right? It's this picture, the centrality of sustained prayer in the Christian life of being, of this sustained the immersion in the presence of God. Pray. And we pray like that. You know, there's this guy, um, this, this evangelist, former missionary pastor named Paul Washer. I'm not a huge fan, but I, I remember uh, this one sermon that I listened to. He preached about people coming to him and being like, hey, man, you know, I've got this terrible thing going on in my life or, or this thing that's really hard, and I prayed, you know. And and again, God won't remove it, or God won't do anything about it. And he was like, "Well, have you prayed?" And the guy's like, "Yeah, I prayed this morning." <laughs> and he's like, "No, no, 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 Have you prayed? Like the Bible points out, have you begged and pleaded with the Lord? Have you prayed with loud cries and groanings? Have you on your knees, consistently uh, and in sustained manner over the course of months, have you prayed?" And he's like, no, no, of course not, right? That's not a biblical value, that's an American value that's kind of creeped up into us. Like how, you know, there's, how can we condense that prayer into a short block of con- you know, intense, concentrated prayer so that we can like move on uh, with, our, with all the important stuff that we have going on during the day, you know? God says it's pretty simple. Ugh. He just wants to do this, you know, what the Bible lays out is this, this simple repetition of movement where we, we just pray consistently and constantly. Uh, you know? Uh, just, he's like, yeah, just keep doing it. You know, If, if it's really important, add some fasting. Do it, and keep doing it. That's the picture the Bible gives, but that's not what we do. We're like, oh God, why do you hate me? Why don't you listen to me, God? Or we're like, no, that's too easy. Oh God, why don't you listen to me? Well, maybe it's something else. It's not prayer, I know. I know what it is. I need to read another book. Oh, God doesn't care. No, maybe I need a different tool. Uh, hammer. Go oh, God, why do you hate me? Why don't you listen to me? I tried all this stuff. I read a new book. I have a new breathing. (laughs) And God says, I just want you to pray, man. And just keep doing it. And over the course of time, being immersed in my presence, and immersed in prayer, over the course of time, sustained, will change you. But think about it. That's God's offer to us. He's saying that there's an uncommon spiritual power that's available to us if we just follow the instructions. If we get serious about prayer, we're serious about our prayer life uh, and serious about being in his presence and taking his word seriously that he changes us in and through that. To not try all these fancy things or to up it or do what we think is right or, or, you know, to add bigger tools or whatever it is that we do to try to override what God's instruction to us has been. Instead, just praying to continually worship him with prayer and fasting. And the the cool thing about that, again, it's available to anybody. I don't care who you are, whether you're bedridden, wherever you are in the world, everybody and anyone can pray. And when we do, God promises that things will happen. And so Anna is really pictured as as one of the great ones, not because of who she is, and ultimately not because of who she is, but because of who she's aligned herself with. She is great, not because of who she is internally, but because of the one who is truly great, who she is in communion with. And so that's the third part, that the common Bible is full of common people with an uncommon future. Uh, You know, the common thread of this whole passage is that all these great ones, Simeon, and this network of saints in corrupt Jerusalem, they're all doing one single thing. They're all waiting for the constellation of Israel. Uh, they're waiting for the consolation of Israel, which means, co- consolation means comfort. And, and what they mean is they're waiting for the comfort that God's promising to bring through his Messiah. Uh, and in their minds, what that meant is the establishment of a new kingdom on earth through this new king, uh, to reestablish the greatness of Israel in the world. Everybody on the scene right now, that's what they're thinking. Uh, and, but as it turns out, and that, then they're being faithful to God in that, that's, what the, re- that's the revelation that they had. Uh, as it turns out, though, what they're all waiting for and hoping for is actually much, much bigger than they could possibly imagine. Uh, it's not just about a new kingdom in or for Israel. It is about a whole new creation that's for all people, not just the Jews, and that's why they trip out. When Simeon gives his blessing, it says, you know, and they marveled about what was being said about Jesus. That What they were marveling about was that it wasn't just about Israel. It wasn't just about the kingdom. It was about a whole new creation for all people. The NLT kind of brings this out, and Simeon says, I have seen your salvation Who's he talking about? He's talking about Jesus. I have seen Jesus, which you have prepared for all people. He is a light to reveal God to the nations, and he is the glory of your people, Israel. Man, it's way bigger than they're imagining. It's this is pivotal moment in the Bible where we start to realize that uh, some of the first people start to realize that God's plan to save is really much, much bigger uh, than they ever they could have ever imagine, and that this baby, the baby, is not just a new king, but he's a baby that makes the whole new kingdom and the new creation possible. See what they know is, what they know as they bring Jesus is, as Mary and Joseph brings Jesus into the temple, and what Simeon and what Anna and what that network of people know. Uh, is that Mary and Joseph are there at the temple to offer up a sacrifice for the child. What they don't know yet is that this baby that they're marveling over is the sacrifice, who is being prepared by God for the salvation of all the people who had put their faith in him. You remember where they're standing, right? They're not on the outer courts. They came to offer a sacrifice of turtle doves, so they're in the inner courts where, the, where these sacrifices are actually being made, where the oxen are being slaughtered, goat being slaughtered. Uh, it's a bloodbath of animals being sacrificed for the sins of the people. And what they don't know is that in about 33 years, this very child that they're marveling over will have to come back to this very same place and suffer the same fate as those bulls and those goats all around them. That's the ultimate takedown of our notions of greatness. That Jesus, the greatest of all, became small so that everyone who believes in him, no matter how small we might be, can become one of the great ones in the kingdom of God based on our relationship with him. That's the comfort that Simeon is saying is the comfort of Israel that they're waiting for he doesn't even know what he's fully saying. But that's what he's talking about. There's this is part, and uh, let me close with this. Kind of pulls it out. There's this is part in uh, C.S. Lewis's book, The Great Divorce, which is a book about uh, heaven and hell and how everybody that's in purgatory or, he- or hell, as you, however you want to look at it, uh, whose dad is, is allowed to go to heaven at any time they want and, and see heaven and see how, much, how beautiful it is and almost no one stays. But at one point, the hero of the story is in heaven and he sees in the distance this parade coming uh, of all these angels and glorious spirits and they're in a parade walking in front of this creature who is so resplendent in beauty and light uh, that, the, that the hero of the story is convinced that it must be Mary or must be some other great heroine of the faith. And so much so um, that he says, this is what he says, and he says when he's trying to remember it back, you know, he's trying to narrate what the scene, he's trying to remember what he saw, and he saw, you know, much of it I have forgotten, and I only partly remember the unbearable beauty of her face. And he says to his guide, he says, is it, is it, he's thinking, that has gotta be Mary. Gotta be somebody super famous. And the guy says, Not at all. She's somebody never heard of, and her name on earth was Sarah Smith. <laughs> she lived in Golden Green. Uh, but she seems to be a person of particular importance. And she says, Ah, she's one of the great ones. You heard that fame in this country and fame on earth are two quite different things. It turns out that Sarah Smith was somebody nobody knew. Total nobody, zero visibility. In terms of the world, she did nothing great. But what she did was love everyone and pray for everyone that she met. And because of that, she became a creature that was so beautiful. This guy and we too would be tempted to bow down and worship her. And that's true of us because of Jesus, because of his life and his death and his resurrection, he has made a way for us, even the lowliest of creatures, even the dirtiest of creatures, no matter what you've done, no matter where we've been, because of what Jesus has done, he's made a way for us to become one of the great ones of the world to come and to be a creature that becomes so beautiful that we saw ourselves now, we'd be terrified and be tempted to bow down and worship. And the beauty of the thing is anyone can do this. You know, you might not be able to become a you know, famous actress or some sort of famous and amazing thing in the world, but anyone can do the basics. Anyone can trust in Jesus. Anyone can pray. Anyone can fast, no matter who you are. And so God is not looking for glory in the famous things, but in the faithful things, and those things are available to everybody. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word of how beautiful it is. Lord, your ideas of greatness and what is truly great are very different from ours. I would guess that you know, we all believe in and we would affirm how important prayer is Uh, And yet it's one of those weird things where we uh, we just don't do it and we go about our busy lives wondering why you feel so distant. So I pray you would help us to be a praying church, Lord. And I pray that that desire to pray would come from the deep, deep knowledge of who you are and what you've done for us in Christ. That we would be responding to you in gratitude and love and that in that uh, you would Im- we would be immersed in your presence and that you would change us. And that we would be, uh, that you would bless us, Lord, to share the same truth with other people in Jesus' name. Amen.